As we quiet our hearts to hear God's word, let us pray. God of power and grace, fill us with the wisdom of your word and the understanding of your spirit so that we may be your church, a people with dreams and visions at work in all the world. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Today's reading is from the English Standard Version translation of Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in my Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Sintichi to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Our second passage this morning comes from the Gospel according to John, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This, they said, to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the word of God for the people of God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. There are often two ways we read this passage, for better or for worse. Sometimes we identify with the woman and talk about how gracious Jesus is to save someone like her and subsequently someone like us. And that's not necessarily wrong, 
it's just a pretty easy read of this passage. And one of the things I've learned for sure is that the Gospels are there to challenge more than comfort us. They are not meant to be an easy read. If you want comfort, read the Psalms. The other way we like to read this is to put ourselves in Jesus' place, to think about how we too can stop judging someone else. Also, not a bad thing to do. We are called to be Christ-like in our lives. Keep being like Jesus. But ultimately, I don't think this passage is primarily about the woman. The story falls apart without her in it, for sure, but you could put any person guilty of a public sin in her place and it doesn't change the narrative much at all. She doesn't have a name. She hardly says a word. Jesus doesn't even seem to acknowledge her presence until after the climax of the story is done. And the nature of her sin isn't key element of this narrative. Now, I think she's important by virtue of being a person who walked the earth, but she's not who this particular narrative is about. Why are we looking at this nameless woman? Where is the man who she is accused of committing adultery with? It takes two to tango. What are the sins that the Pharisees and the scribes acknowledge by walking away, but never actually confess? Notice that the person in the situation with the least power, the woman, is the one receiving the most blame. We aren't told how the circle of zealous would-be vigilantes responds in the long run, but Jesus' message is different for the one whose sin is publicly known than the one whose sins are silent. It is a shame how readily we identify with the woman or even with Jesus in this story. Because let's be honest, more often than not, we are the Pharisees and the scribes. It's way easier to call out the public sins of others than to investigate our own sins tucked in the recesses of our hearts. And even if we aren't overtly judging others when it's not our place to, we tend to swing too far in the other direction and pat ourselves on the back for not judging them. How magnanimous we like to be in accommodating those who don't behave as we believe they should. All the while, we still have our own stuff we refuse to call out, to confess, and to wrestle with. Both of these extremes miss what Jesus is saying here. You have your own sin to deal with. Get your own house in order. Back in the day, there was actually reluctance when this gospel, the gospel of John was being edited. There was reluctance to add this story to it. It's not in some of the earliest manuscripts of the gospel and there was great resistance to leaving it in, even though it, it does appear to fit and date back to the right time. It's possible that this was originally part of another gospel. The style fits a little more with Luke than John, but it's certainly part of the gospels and of the gospel narrative, even if it's not in its original place. So what I find interesting is the argument that was made for leaving it out 
powers that be, or rather, I should say, perhaps the powers that were, didn't like the idea of having to investigate their own sins. They wanted to see a Jesus who came down hard on a woman who had committed adultery, not one who sent away the zealots to go investigate their own dark hearts. Even from its earliest days, the church loved a good sin-shaming. The church became pretty powerful pretty quickly back then, and one of the things people with power over others like to do is to use guilt and sin-shaming as a way of maintaining that power over them. They were uncomfortable with a Jesus who turns power balances upside down. This passage isn't saying that God doesn't care about sin or even that Jesus doesn't want to see people held accountable. Jesus isn't telling anyone here that you have to be sinless to be a leader who might have to hold people accountable. He's speaking out against zealots who are taking the law into their own hands. Even if what the woman did had been illegal at the time, these men were trying to kill her without going through the proper channels of Roman law. So not only were they being cruel, they were taking justice into their own hands out of turn. Jesus offers a message to both the powerful vigilantes and to the marginalized woman. To the ones so worried about the sins of others who want to hear a word from Jesus about how terrible that other is. He gives no satisfaction. It's not your place, he says. And to the one being condemned and beaten down by the hypocritical men in power, he offers a hand and a kind word. He doesn't say she is without sin. That would be silly. That would be ridiculous. None of us are sinless. But to the one who has been abused and demeaned by the world, he offers no condemnation. It's not that God doesn't care about the sins of everyone. It's just that the sins of other people aren't really our business. Not in the we need to say something about this way. Are we supposed to take a stand against sin in the world against, around us? Of course. Do we do that by tearing down individuals who we perceive as being sinful or by throwing groups of people who aren't behaving how we like under the bus? No. You don't know what led them there. You don't have all the evidence. Remember, that woman didn't commit adultery alone, and yet where was the man she committed adultery with in this narrative? In an old Christianity Today article, Stephen Brown says this. It was F.B. Meyer, I believe, who once said that when we see a brother or sister in sin, there are two things we do not know. First, we do not know how hard he or she tried not to sin. And second, we do not know the power of the forces that assailed him or her. We also do not know what we would have done in the same circumstances. It is not our call or our mission or our job or our place in the world to throw rocks at the people around us who aren't behaving the way we think a good Christian behaves. That is not how Christians are to take a stand against sin in the world. It's just not. 
We take a stand against sin by investigating our own hearts carefully. We must first stand up against all manner of sin in our own lives. We must acknowledge that no matter how far we have come on this journey toward righteousness, we still have a long way to go. We can't control how other people live their lives, no matter how hard we try or how harshly we punish them even. Ask any parent. We can only lead by example. Treat others with kindness, the same kindness that Jesus shows, and offer appropriate words of wisdom when necessary. This is a helpful passage for me these days. The world is so full of people being publicly awful. And this passage is a good check on us to make sure we stay in our own lane. It's easy to see others behaving badly on TV, in the news, in the grocery store, even in our own family systems. And it's easy to jump on board with gangs of people shouting about the terrible sins of those on the other side. So these days more than ever, it's important for us to look out for those times that we are called not to focus on the sin of the other or even on our own efforts to not judge them, but rather to focus on our own hearts and growth. We want to combat the hate and division in the world today. Start on your own heart. I'd like to imagine and I have no reason to believe this, but I like to imagine that at least one of those Pharisees or scribes went home and thought long and hard about that interaction. Maybe talked to his buddy about how he'd never thought of it like that before. We don't know what happened with any of them after that, but we can know what changes for the better in our own lives when we take up this charge to be who Jesus says we are, to be victorious, in Christ over the sin in our own hearts and lives. Jesus' victory over sin doesn't mean that we have to battle all the sin in the world. It just means that we can control some sin, our own. What freeing news, what a load off shoulders that message is. We don't have to personally squash all the sin in the world. Jesus is victorious over sin by offering each and every one of us a relationship with him that empowers us to shine light on the dark places of our own hearts so that we might then be light in the world. It's not about what we take out of the world. It's about what we have to offer it for the better. It's about what we put back into the world.